Hey everyone, it's about that time. We're going to cover growing tomatoes, right? Right? Please. That's all you asked me to do was talk about growing tomatoes. Nah, bro. You know what we gotta do. Plug our recent partnership with Lowry's Seasoned Salt. All right, stop. We cannot afford to get sued. Fine. No need to get salty about it. I swear to God, Andy. Listen, I see you and I hear you. So annoying. You might hate me, but I am the one who knows how to grow food, so you keep me around. So having spent the last three episodes covering multi-species grazing and civil pasture systems, you might be really tired of us talking about land management through these different perspectives. However, now that we have an understanding of tree utilization within a grazing setting, it's really important to start thinking about the trees for these systems themselves. And in this episode, we're focusing on two particular methodologies around producing from these trees. And those two methods are coppicing and pollarding. Okay, so we've heard Andy mention pollarding and coppicing a few hundred times already. And full I mean, first off, at least 500 times, not a few hundred a times. F- 500, excuse me. And we'll, we'll, we'll go more. We'll do it. I'm hitting a thousand. But I've been trying uh, to hold this joke back for a while because there was one episode where we were struggling with what to call tree hay and going back and forth between the difference between tree hay and silage and whatever you want, fodder, whatever you want to call it. And it struck me that we should just call it pollard greens. Like it, this joke writes itself. It does write itself. Pollard greens, collard greens, come on. It's brilliant, but yeah. I, I, I digress. So in effect, these pollard greens can be managed in a couple different ways. Although there is a difference in managing trees for your pollard greens versus actually pollarding. And uh, we'll cover the, the tree hay, the tree fodder, whatever Elliot wants to call it, his pollard greens. That's right. Do you put some Lowry's on that? I mean, why wouldn't you? Brought to you by Lowry's. Now I'm hungry. <laughs> so when, you're, when we're talking about pollarding, rather, instead of pollard greens, uh, there's a couple things you want to think about. So the general idea is that you want to cut the tree during dormancy at a specific height, either at the roots, if you're coppicing, or at a designated height, usually above browsing height. And that's usually around like six or so feet if you're pollarding. That's like the really short answer. And the long answer is, well, ingrained in human history and what it means to be connected with the landscape. And that fills books, mostly books not in English, but they're out there. We covered a bit about coppicing and pollarding in a few episodes earlier, but nothing significantly deeper than its general uses. During the Pearl Model series, we had talked both about coppicing and pollarding as common practices across the globe, and that's not really much of a surprise when you think about it. The biggest benefit of both practices is that it allows for us to reuse the root systems of the tree while also getting the benefits of cutting down the tree, so the tree returns quickly to life the following year. Different species offer different benefits, and every tree has a long list of utilities. Willows, for example, are not only incredibly fast coppicing trees, but they make great starter kindling, good feed for animals. They make slender willow whips called withies that are incredibly flexible and have traditionally been used for things from rope to tying thatched roofs, and of course, wicker baskets and furniture that all come from willows. A stump can send up a dozen shoots that are six inches in diameter in a few short years, while a seedling might take up to 20 years to produce just as much mass. Through coppicing and pollarding, the landscape is able to provide us with sustainable ways to stay warm, to eat, forage, and be interactive and thoughtful in our decisions with the landscape. Yeah, so I'm not just eating any leaves again. Move aside mulberries. I got a new favorite. It's pollard greens with the pepper sauce and the cornbread. If it's not, I don't want it. And I miss you, Grandma. 
What about using branches as floss? Also known as toothpicks to regular people. No, that's not what I mean. So birches have this really great minty flavor in their branches, and they were really traditionally used by indigenous people for keeping their teeth clean. And when the colonizers showed up, they thought they were just like these disgusting, nasty-ass white people that didn't know how to clean themselves. So, you know, maybe there's something to the birch branches. Yeah, so to answer your question, I have used a minty toothpick before. They have those minty-flavored toothpicks, which is what you described. Yeah, used it. Been there. I don't know if it's birchwood, though. I don't like it. Sounds too processed for me. It came wrapped in plastic. So yeah, with your plastic toothpicks, you might want to be a little bit more thoughtful about your relationship with the landscape. And that's why we have to be thoughtful in our decisions in our landscape. And what do I mean by being thoughtful? So let's think about how we currently manage lands and some of the challenges that come with it. You have a garden, you plant your animals, which are intensive feeders, and then the soil needs to rest after a year or maybe two. Even with good cover cropping, it might take a year or two to return those nutrients to the soil in order to feed those, especially the needier fruiting annuals. What if, for example, those annuals grew with pollards in place? If the trees are cut down as a pollard the first year of the annual garden and are thinned for tree hay consistently, allowing good sunlight access to still get to the soil. It's okay if an annual garden has a little bit of shade, and this is a really good example of when you can actually take advantage of that. The second year is the same thing. The only thing left are the main shoots and the tops. By the third year, the pollards are left to their own, and the soil is covered in cover crops until the cycle repeats a few years later. This is just one way that we can think about integrating the cycles of the landscape into our food systems. With coppicing, we can create a timed system of agriculture that gives lumber, grain, and vegetables, and renews the forest. And this practice has been utilized across the globe for a variety of products. Using pollards and coppice, the Iberians produced wood, charcoal, vines, cork, ink, sweeteners, and pork fat. The people of Japan developed systems that brought them rice, wood, pottery, poetry, and fire. The people of Sweden and Norway for thousands of years had grown fodder for their sheep, goats, and cattle, and wood for their stoves. The Basques had charcoal to make iron, wood to build and heat their houses, and they had specialized pollarded trees that made ship's timber. Using fire coppice, the indigenous people of North and South America cleared land for growing and in return received poles to make houses, traps, and stimulated the production of fruits and nuts. California tribes harvested stems to make the baskets to hold food and supplies, to sift, and even to cook meals. The English got poles for footbridges and withies to weave fences and walls. Europeans had got the small wood to burn with limestone, kilning the quicklime from which they made fertilizer, disinfectant, and paint. By means of fire coppicing, the people of the Amazon basin had created a shifting agriculture that enriched the rainforest soils with slow-to-decay charcoal and biochar. Yeah, you're just like everybody else. Even you didn't even mention your own people. You didn't bring up the Italians. Wow. Shots fired. There's actually a really interesting history of chestnut trees in Italy to grow grapevines across the landscape. And not only this... No, no, no. I don't really care. I just wanted to dunk on you. And we just had Columbus Day, so him too. Well. Fine. I guess you'll never know. I'm fine with that. It's okay. That's amore. <sighs> so, if coppicing is so good, why was it abandoned? Well, I'm sure you're familiar with the story of the tragedy of the commons, and this was part of the act of campaign which worked to suggest the commons had been destroyed by the commoners. The real story of the tragedy of the commons has made its way across the internet in meme and podcast form, so go do a quick Google search on it if you're not familiar with how the landowner class turned the commoners against their own interests. Fortunately, that thing doesn't happen anymore today. 
the often lopped trees of the common around villages were thought to be these hideous disfigurements, signs of the backwardness of the stupid country bumpkin. You know, those people that had existed for thousands of years without societal collapse. The best idea was to burn them or cut them down and sell them. Agriculturalist William Marshall in 1785 stated that pollards, which by reason of their decay or stintedness, will not, in the course of 18 or 20 years, throw out tops equal in value to their present bodies. So he was suggesting that these trees could not be salvaged, essentially. John Locke, in his second treatise on government, further praised the person who enclosed and cleared an acre of land, making it pure farmland rather than allowing it to, in quote, continue lying waste in common. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure that's the premise of several movies, like Technology Will Save Us, just like what, iRobot. Or Terminator. Or Blade Runner. Or Terminator 2. Or Total Recall. Or Terminator 3. Or Westworld, which is great. Or Terminator 4. Or Terminator 5. And I think they made a Terminator 6, but it was a TV show. Anyways, prior to this, coppicing was ubiquitous across the globe. Hold up. I know the answer to this question before I ask it, but have you ever actually seen the Terminator? No. Seriously? It, in the older woodlands, man and tree were co-actors no, 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 in nature. No, no, no. Seriously, you haven't seen it? Do I look like someone who's watched Terminator? You look like you watch sheep. And I do. That's true. But also Terminator 2, if we're going to bring it up, might be the only sequel that's better than the original movie. Don't at me, kids. I agree fully with this statement based on all of the knowledge that I have, which is what Elliot just told me. So, anyways, much like humans in older woodlands, the sheep and I, unlike Terminator, respect and respond to each other. In this new landscape, man became the spectator of an idea of nature that he himself had made in the image of an understanding of history that had never existed. If you traveled back to the end of the last ice age, for example, it's very likely that the wildwood browsed by large herbivores like mammoths and mastodons much more closely resembled pollarded woods than our notion of a pristine, old-growth, expansive forest. In a review of the literature on sprouting among leafy trees, Arnold Arboretum botanist Peter Del Tradici estimated that 80% of trees in a broadleaf forest are not seedlings but sprouts from a pre-existing stem. So that's, that's a fancy way of saying coppice. So you might be wondering, why does this happen to some trees and not to others? You've seen that many trees don't come back when they're cut down. Why do some do this while others don't? Yeah, that's totally the question that I had. I can tell. I was going to ask it. Right now, Elliot's trying to find RoboCop on TV. Terminator? What, what were we talking about? It was Terminator. You've never seen RoboCop either. No. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so the answer really lies in the presence of what are called epicormic buds, structures that lie dormant in the tree's sapwood. These usually stay dormant due to a healthy flow of hormones coming from the growing tips of the tree back down into the trunk. When the flow of these hormones stop, the buds spring into action and the trees start growing from these buds instead. These buds are sort of the tree's backup plan. Many species of deciduous trees can do this, such as willow, hazel, oak, and black walnut, and black locust. Lots of people say conifers can't coppice, and they're mostly right. A reminder, conifers are your firs, pines, spruce, and most other evergreens. Some species, however, have different botanical mechanisms that sort of allow them to do the same thing. If you leave the bottom few layers of branches that are alive when you cut down the tree, one of those branches will become the new leader and grow into a new tree using the original rootstock. You can sometimes see this if you go into an older Christmas tree farm, but you can also see this happening in nature if you see any of those pine trees that look like a hand coming up from the ground. And this is because the white pine weevil, 
which will often, if there's a new white pine tree in like a field, it'll eat the top of the branch. And then the whorl, which is the, the five or six branches that circle around that come up every year. So every new year, there's a new growth of those whorls. And all of those whorls will fight to be the new leader. And sometimes you'll have one takeover and sometimes you'll have like six. And it'll look like this cool hand coming out of the earth. So if you ever see one of those white pine trees, that's what happened. In regions where fires are a common disturbance, some species of trees have developed a storage organ known as a lignotuber that sits at the base of the tree, usually largely buried. Really notable examples are like younger cork trees and eucalyptus. Most of the tree's backup buds live near the surface of the lignotuber, so when the branches of the tree are destroyed in a fire, the buds there are ready to recruit new stems. In fact, the word recruit itself comes from the French meaning to grow again, referring to the ability of trees to sprout after cutting. It was an ironic way to speak of armies as being indefinitely refillable. Ah, is there anything more natural than the sound of recruiters in the morning? This episode brought to you by Capitalism. Let the sweet serenade of bloodsuckers bring forth your consciousness in the morning. Oh God! Ooh, you really caught yourself there. You probably need to go to the hospital. Damn it, this is the second time this year. Do you know if I should take it out or leave it in? Have you heard of the poor Pearl's Almanac? Do I look like I need a book right now? My leg! Bro, I got you. It's a podcast. We can play it on the ride in the Wii Woo. It'll help you learn all this kind of outdoor stuff. The, the Wii Woo, what the- Stay focused, bro. Let me pull it up. Bro, did you know you can make coffee out of acorns? You alright? Those guys sound familiar. I don't know. I can't put my finger on it. I mean, I think they sound like you getting distracted from our topic. So tell us more about these recruiters. Uh, can we put them in like a barrel and set it on fire? No, no, no. The Lignotuber recruiters. Oh, yeah. So obviously branching in itself isn't really an innovation. Not something trees learned to do because of an ice age or some recent event. It was actually a way of life that had gradually been perfected over 400 million years. So back before plants came on land, next the time, seaweed... Next time, just start at the Big Bang. Like, how far back are we going to go? We only have an hour. So these seaweeds learned to fork as they grew. Each stem had sprouted two daughter stems. Each daughter had done the same, and so on, and so on, ad infinitum. In this way, a single plant had been able to spread across the entire surface of the water, exposing as much of its green surface to the sun as possible. And that's how photosynthesis was born, or made or create it. I don't know how to do this. So trees grow not through just their persistence, but their imagination. 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 So every plant really plays on like six different choices when it comes to figuring out how it's going to branch. So the first is whether or not it wants to branch. Palms, for example, never branch, though some clustering palms might make the second choice, which is if you do choose to branch, you do so only at the bottom or along a stem. So like bamboo, or the palms that I had spoken about above, can become simply a colony of stems, each repeating from the base, and the small grove is actually, in fact, a single plant. And the third, do your trunk and branches grow without a rest, or is there a dormant season? Trees with a definite dormant season, like spruce and fir, tend to have a very clean and open habit of growth. And again, when we were talking about the white pine and those whorls, you get one new whorl every single season. The fourth one is, do all your branches want to grow upward or all outward, or do some want to grow upwards and some outwards? So like dogwoods, for example, prefer to mainly grow outward. 
Staghorn sumac wants to grow mainly upward, but it looks weird because of it also follows another pattern. So the fifth one, do you flower at the branch tips or on smaller lateral branches? Again, sumac flowers at the terminal, so each year's new growth must start from dormant laterals below the tips, but it's trying to grow straight up, so it's got a really weird shape because of that. The sixth one is, do your branches change back and forth between growing outward and growing upward? This is a flexible arrangement that lets the plant fill the space above and around it. Now, if every tree tries to express these six different methods, why isn't that when you look in the forest, you only see like six different types of trees? Is the answer capitalism? Is the answer ever capitalism? I mean, I guess if the question is about why people can't do something, then yeah, usually. Touche. Well, much like capitalism, the answer is because of many accidents. The first third of the tree's life is called positive morphogenesis. Building up is what it means. Actually, the literal translation of morphogenesis would be with the Greek root words. I believe it's original form. And again, I digress. But for the listeners, the reason I do this is because I took Latin one year and I can see the root words in like Latin and Greek based He's super smart. words. Yeah, well, I just try to like determine what a word means by those root words. And then I look it up and sometimes I'm way off, but usually I'm pretty close, but it's just sort of been like a fascination of mine and it gets kind of annoying, but I just, I can't help it. It's, it's the only thing I have to add to the podcast. So I'm going to do it. He was number 21 in our high school class. No, you were pretty high up there. I was in top 50. I was in the bottom 50. You were. That's also because you didn't do schoolwork. <laughs> yeah. What you went, you just didn't do it. I showed up. Well, yeah. I usually showed up. Uh, so this phase that these trees are building up in might last a hundred years. It might be a couple hundred years. Then for a century or two, the tree may maintain its full stature, getting to a point where it can no longer grow much taller or wider, but uses all of its energy to replace any lost piece with fresh improvisations. So as branches get knocked off, they might try to replace them and things like that. Finally, as it enters in their third stage of life, negative morphogenesis we see that growing down period, which Elliot will probably tell you means something else, but I'm just going to call it growing down. He's silently laughing at me Negative right now. morphogenesis would be like the negative of the original form. So like, I guess it would be the yin to the yang. If you say so. That, I, 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 I didn't take I, Latin. So. I have no idea. I literally don't know. So this growing down process is not just decay. It's an active and improvisational as the building up was. So the roots become damaged and die, branches are lost to storms, and there's hollows that'll start opening up in the trunk that end up getting colonized by things like fungi, and the tree's circulation system starts to essentially break down and work around dead parts of the tree. Mm, and it I, I know part of that, the solid circulation system. Yeah. Is that where xylem and phloem comes in? Maybe. I know those words. Those are, those are tree words. <laughs> I know those words. I've read those somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So what's happening is essentially the tree, as it loses branches and things like that, it can't fully regenerate anymore, but it still tries to stay alive. And, you know, it, it's thoughtful about what it keeps alive and doesn't. You'll see like on, as the tips of the highest branches start to die back, there'll be these new branchlets on their undersides that'll try to sprout these little trees that try to essentially start over in those spaces without trying to put out the full energy of recreating massive branches. And in this process, we can study and understand the plant's 
own process of growing down and keep the tree alive and safe for many years longer than we thought was once possible. So like people have determinate lifespans. Trees really don't. Yeah, fuck it. I'm evolving into a tree. Like I read in uh, one of the books in the Ender's Game saga, it's either Xenocide or Speaker for the Dead, but there's this cool alien race on this planet. And after they get to their like age maturity, they like destroy their bodies and plant themselves like a tree and they grow into like this crazy like tree brain thing. And that's how they like, that's like their next step of evolution is being a tree. So you're going to be tree evolving? <sighs> yeah. And I reread those books later as an adult with like a broader worldview and a broader scope and noticed all those racial undertones and man, he was real slick about it because I still enjoyed reading the book, but Orson Scott Card's a crazy asshole. <laughs> Are you trevolving or are you not trevolving? You know I hate you, right? Why? It's a good hate, right? That's, That's a more. Ha! Took I my, beat you to it. My I, line. I'm just going to keep cutting you off. It's fine. So why the hell are we talking about all this? So all of this is part of our understanding of how trees exist on the earth. And we have to understand those natural processes before we can try to manage them, essentially. So while we're primarily focused on things like coppicing and pollarding, we also want to manage the landscape as it exists and manage those other trees. And part of coppicing is understanding the biological components that are a part of the process so that we can understand what we're seeing happen around us. So in a coppice woodland, or in other words, a coppice forest, these trees aren't a single thing, but part of an essentially a synthetic ecosystem in which human participation is really the key to it. There are far more species of plants and insects and birds and all sorts of other creatures that inhabit these mixed landscapes then would live in an untouched woodland, a, a quote-unquote natural woodland, as some folks like to think of nature existing without us. And the fact that it's cut in a rhythmic cycle keeps a living seed bank in the dirt and allows for a tremendous variety of animal life that can safely live there as long as it pleases. So a coppicing is really like a, a continued performance that humans are the, the key function of it that benefits all of the pieces. Yeah, so we've talked about this before. This approach kind of brings back that concept of man in nature and not man like and like and nature. Correct. Yeah. Interesting. So, to keep these types of coppice woodlands is really an art. Each manager of any or character that manages and works within this landscape has really two different aims. The first is to renew the woods by harvesting the wood and not just managing the trees, but also the flowers, the berries, shrubs, birds, butterflies, deer, and all the other visitors that are integrated into these systems. And that cutting is really the first step. So different trees like different ways to be cut. For example, hazel and alder, you want to cut as close to the dirt as you can get. For older stools of ash or willow or maple, birch, linden, sycamore, or elm, forest manager might typically cut it at an angle six inches or so above the ground. Some of the trees can be cut as thick as telephone poles, others the width of a human arm, others prefer to be cut when they're still super slender and whippy like bean poles, and all this is according to each species of tree, to the sun accessibility of the region that it's grown in, and to the purpose for which it was kept. The skill of the landscape manager is really to know the trees and how each is likely to respond to a different type of cut. The dirt and soil, the species, the sun, and the water all play a role in this decision. 
And you really have to respond to this whole landscape. So in the first three years following a cut, what ends up happening is the sunlit dirt will begin to bloom. That seed bank will really open up. You'll have essentially meadows below the trees or where the trees were. By the fourth year after the cut, those young poles of the resprouting coppice begin to shadow out the ground as they get bigger and bigger. Life changes in their shade. And what that means is you'll see more things like brambles and raspberries that'll take over where the sun-loving flowers had once been. And as they grow bigger, you'll end up with what becomes a thicket, essentially. As the flowers retreat to the edges between the rows of the coppice, they'll drop their seed and essentially wait until the coppices are gone in the next few years. And by around like the seventh year of the cut, the spreading tops of the coppice trees will close the entire canopy. And under this canopy, the ground changes again as the, the soil opens up and the shade dwellers start to emerge. Like gremlins? I thought those were under bridges. Nah, dude, that's racist against trolls and my old landlord. Only some gremlins live under bridges. Gremlindas? Please tell me her name was Linda. It was actually your great aunt. My great aunt? Yeah. Your... J- James told me you guys were related to her. Who? Uh, Rose. Oh, yes it is. That's weird. <laughs> That's fucking weird. <laughs> She's a troll, sorry. <laughs> uh, so, speaking of shade dwellers, is that an advertisement I hear? Are you suffering from minor irritation, occasional water shortages, infrastructural collapse, or a general unhappiness with the state? The Poor Proles Almanac Patreon might be for you. The Poor Proles Almanac has been shown to ease anxiety and support community resilience through a voluntary, subscription-based system to support collective liberation when taken responsibly. Side effects may include seed hoarding, root cellaring, staring in awe at the beauty of nature, and outright radicalization. In rare cases, it may lead to the radicalization of friends and loved ones, and maybe even that guy that stands next to you at the bus stop. So talk to your local deviant to see if the Poor Proles Almanac Patreon is right for you. We've become everything we swore to destroy. I am a straight white dude talking about indigenous food systems. You said it, not me. I mean, the British are the first people we think of when we start talking about coppicing and pollarding, despite this being a worldwide practice. Yeah, at least we're not making a shitload of money off of it. And if we do, um, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, we're not. Don't worry. So this isn't the only methodology around coppice rotation. And another common practice was called coppicing with standards. The general idea of this was to coppice a tree except for like one shoot, allowing that shoot to get to, ready for it, standard size. These larger poles were often utilized for very specific things, primarily things like lumber that needed to be cut straight. And of course, in a field like this, the trees will get significant headway above the others who chase the sun below it. Now, places like Norway use livestock to continue resetting this succession of the forest floor, keeping the grasses growing and reducing the brambles in order to feed their livestock. But this wasn't always the case, as explained before. The coppicing cycle offers a glimpse into the framework of how landscape can be managed intensively with a multitude of different changes which tackle the unique conditions of place and time and give us an idea of what sustainable agroecology can look like. So each coppicing cont is a woodland history in miniature, and a cont is essentially like a paddock, but for coppicing. And in these cants, I don't know if it's cant or cant. I believe it's cant, like canted, like cant. I mean, that probably makes sense, but cant feels like 
British. I'm very British. Thought he was a philosopher. I mean, it's not spelled the same. It's with a C instead of a K. Uh, okay. Immanuel Kant, yes. Yeah. So I guess you're making my point for me. Yep. Or making your point for you. I sure am. I won. Yeah. I won this round. He wins this round. So I will call it a cant to make Elliot happy. Everyone that's listening, please tell Elliot that he's wrong. Yeah, yell at me. I don't give a shit. <laughs> so if there are 15 cants, for example, in a given woods, though, what we see is in one or two of those cants, you'll have the, that site cleared and every two or so cants may have a different year, essentially. So every year you're clearing two or one or whatever it might be cants and you have all seven stages or eight stages, whatever it might be you're doing available for the various biology to move around to. So this annual rhythm of cutting and moving from one cant to the next is very similar to what we think of when we think of like paddocks and except on a much larger scale. Instead of grazing every couple months, you're talking about going in every seven years or so. Doing this brings better light to the younger cants, but it also helps the animals that prefer a given stage to stay with it as they evolve across the landscape. The scrubby tops of the new cut coppice can also make effective fencing to keep animals out of the older meadows that you don't want them going into. The tops of next year's cut might reinforce last year's fences, as well as make its own, and so on and so on around the whole coppice. Yeah, so this systemic, you know, it's a cycle. It closely resembles nature, and we're just kind of mimicking that cycle and that stage of growth where all the stages are represented. Um, and it doesn't really feel like a management or like an agricultural technique so much as like letting nature do its thing and we're just kind of... Resetting the clock. Right. Or at least yeah. just taking what we need from it without disrupting the cycle. The cycle's going to remain the same. We're just taking what we need without causing that entropy. Yeah, I mean, we're not killing the cycle, but we're setting it back a little bit. Sure. And like, I, th you know, there's a meme that's going around lately that's like, um, make America an expansive old growth forest again. And it, it never was an old growth forest, really. Um, there were older trees and things like that, but there was a lot of forest management that it wouldn't be a quote unquote, like untouched old growth forest that never really existed. And, you know, you brought up beavers and I know you love yourself a good beaver. <laughs> and they were they did the same thing we are like fire beavers essentially like we do the same thing with fire and now with tools and things like that where we can reset that clock but it has a, a positive long-term impact on the ecology because we're making space for new ecologies and things that don't fit into those old growth forests and that's kind of what we're doing here is again much like with grazing where we're intensively grazing through paddocks and you're resetting that that clock of the, the plants, you know, evolving into forest, if it's a non-brittle environment or whatever it might be, we're doing the same thing, except on a bigger um, scale, both in terms of like the plant size, grasses versus trees, and also in, in terms of like linear time, where we're talking about instead of grazing every 60 days, we're talking about cutting down every seven years. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't necessarily have to be seven years. That's just the example I'm using right now. So to get back to what we were talking about, so we had talked in one of the episodes about in Norway that broadleaf trees were often pollarded and coppiced on short cycles of like four to six years. Alder, willow, and sometimes rowan were coppiced, cut straight to the ground. The rest of the trees were pollarded, starting with a head cut at like six to eight feet, again, understanding how high your animals will graze, meaning the main trunk was cut back to what's called a knuckle, 
And that spot is where it will be repeatedly cut moving into the future. So that way the tree becomes trained to grow outward from those stems. So those spots will be cut back in rotation perennially. And that necessarily isn't the same as the full pollarding. So you might essentially like train the tree after you've pollarded it so that there's only certain branches that take over and you're continuously doing things like cutting tree hay while there's some main branches, lateral branches that come up from that knuckle and those might stay for seven years and then those are cut down while you're continuously harvesting tree hay that comes off of those lateral branches. Does that make sense, Elliot? It's a little complicated. I might need a picture. <laughs> okay. Um, we'll, we'll add appendices yeah. to our uh, Discord so I'll, everybody can see yeah, all I'll, this, what we're talking about. I'll draw like a whole bunch of really bad pictures it's that look be- like... I, my, I'm lefty, so it looks like a three-year-old drew it. It's terrible. My kids are better artists than I am. Have them do it. I might. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do they do all day? You, you do it. Gotta earn your keep, guys. So with this process, those main stems are allowed to get almost as big as like a human's arm, which keeps a really high ratio of leaves to wood. Now, if you left it on a longer cycle of rotation, you end up with more wood and fewer leaves. So it really depends on what you're trying to get out of the trees. So some of the farmers, like I said, would cut the branches in late summer while the leaves are still green and pretty nutritious. Others would lop the smaller leaf-bearing stems off the big one, and there's a couple benefits to that. Uh, Depending on the climate, you might be able to get multiple harvests by harvesting the first one early in the season. The second benefit is if you're trying to grow the wood for like lumber, you're going to get less knots as long as you keep those branches off when they're pretty young. So it, it depends on what you're trying to get out of the tree. When they would gather these leaves, or these branches rather, they'd take the clutches and uh, bundle and tie them together with like birch twigs or something like that. And then they would dry them in bunches, either on racks or on trees themselves or poles. Like if anyone's ever seen like those the round stacks of firewood that are meant to like shed water so that they stay dry naturally, or a hay, like the old school hay bales where they take like the, the actual bundle of the hay and just stack them against each other almost like a a hut it's the same concept so today most folks are using like a chainsaw or a bow saw but for thousands of years the main tool is really this thing called a leaf knife and even before metal tools this sharp edged stone hand blade could be used for the same purpose for this reason it was possible to feed leaf hay to the animals in winter hundreds of years before it was possible to use something like a metal scythe to cut grass hay a good sharp leaf knife could get through an arm-sized stem in like four good blows. This practice is by far the oldest method of agricultural manipulation and the one we carried with us across the entire world. We should have put the axe commercial here. I'll cut your leg off right here. I need to lose some weight, so go you know. <laughs> so, these, uh, so the cutting of the trees stimulated faster and thicker meadow growth. Typically, groups of trees were pollarded in succession year by year, so there were generally five different stages of regrowth. A novel ecosystem of invertebrates, fungi, lichens, and other creatures would inhabit the trees as they regrew. Where trees had recently been cut, the pastures would grow thicker and quicker, not only because they got more light where the branches had been cut back, but also because small dying tree roots, the roots that retrenched when the trees were pruned, contribute to the organic matter in the soil. So you're essentially causing some breakdown of the roots, which return nutrients back into the soil. The grasses there would be grazed twice in the season, so they got plenty of manure as well as the feet of the animals opening up that sod. So a coppice woodland is divided 
like I said, into those sections of Kant's or Kant's, depending who you ask, Elliot. You did ask me. Did I? No. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, you did. If you say so. I can't remember that far back. We'll go back to the minutes. Yeah. Who's taking minutes? Matt, where are you? Matt. I hate it here. I hate it here. I hate it here. I hate it. Uh, so in, in doing this uh, division of the, the woodland was essentially marked by utilizing a system of ditches and banks. The earth was dug out to like three feet or more around the edge of each part of those cants or cants to make a tall bank on the inside. And each section had a bunch of different names. Cant, coop, sale, bell, burrow, or hag. You can literally call it whatever you want. Yeah, I don't know. That's, this is what I've been told. They all mean the same thing. Yeah, so these, these ditches were primarily tools to mark property lines, but also offered a secondary benefit as a way to move water around a forest. This practice was more common in places like the United Kingdom, where water saturation can cause root rot and death because of the high amounts of precipitation. So there may have been more uses for these ditches and banks, but that, that knowledge has unfortunately been lost to history, which brings us up to today. See, 400 million years, easy peasy. What year is it? Hey, Robin Williams is back. Nailed it. Nailed it. So we've briefly touched on a few different species and their uses. Most trees offer edible forage for animals, which might come as a surprise if you haven't been listening to us rant on and on about it for hours on end, since not only is it rarely talked about outside of us, but many agricultural extension schools often list edible species as toxic. This speaks to how much has been lost in terms of understanding things like tree hay, and we're going to dedicate an entire episode to tree hay in um, probably about a month or so, so hang on tight. If you're looking for it, it's probably going to be called pollard greens, so keep an eye out for that. Elliot is very proud of that one. It's so good. And I, it's I so just, good. I want some so bad. <laughs> I will whip you up some pollard greens. Do it. The important thing to remember really is that most species are edible. Obviously not all, but we will cover a bit of that. So what can we utilize today? Hazels, birches, willows, black locusts, honey locusts, mulberries, right, Elliot? Mm. Maples and oaks are particularly promising for temperate North America because they have multiple uses. And I apologize, I'm only speaking for the species and regions I know, so I can't really talk much about other parts of the world, but I can guarantee you there are definitely species everywhere that have Really unique benefits that are in more tropical climates, and I can't convince my wife to move someplace warmer, so I will just continuously be stuck in cold, temperate climates and miserable. Not that I hold it against her. I don't know what I would do with that winter. Oh, I would love it. I'm not made for winter. I feel like the years would go by, like, too fast. No. Everything. You know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how I'd handle it. Well, but we're going to find out. But I digress. We'll find out with climate change. Thanks, America. I, we did say capitalism was the answer to something, and this is probably it. Climate change. <laughs> we don't have to deal with winter anymore. <laughs> yeah. Sick. Sick. <laughs> so while I frequently rave about locusts. Honey locusts and black locusts. Yeah, yeah. you do. And they're great because they coppice and pollard well, grow quickly, fix nitrogen into the soil, each in different ways. And they both offer really fantastic firewood and are great feed for livestock. Honey locusts in particular are great for hedgling because they've got lots of pointy things and have other benefits. But um, that's also for another episode where we'll be talking about that stuff and 
are both trees I personally grow, those honey and black locusts. Hazels obviously provide nuts, but also have incredibly pliable poles that are great for a ton of different products, from fishing poles to fencing and basketry. Willow is an absurdly fast-growing tree, which offers some of the most delicious leaves I've fed to my own sheep, and I find chickens even enjoy a bit of a nibble on them, while also growing in more wet conditions than many other species will bear, and is the original species wicker furniture was made from. And uh, that speaks to the fact that it's super easy to manipulate and can be used for a million different things. Further, the extra logs that you don't need are really great for inoculating with lion's mane and oyster mushrooms. So birches also grow incredibly quickly while also having the added benefit of birch syrup, which if you've never had it, go get some birch water or go tap a birch tree because it's very delicious. And all of this makes it a particularly intriguing candidate for coppicing with Standers Project because then you've got that main trunk that you can tap annually and you can cut down the rest of the branches for the other stuff you want to do. And um, it can also host lion's mane and shiitake mushrooms on cut logs as well. So if you're into mushrooms, that's another one that's worth keeping in mind. I know we got some mycologist listeners out there. Yeah. Also, mulberry is one of the most incredible and underutilized trees on the earth are fantastic for more than just feeding Elliot, but also uh, producing massive amounts of fruit. They coppice incredibly well. They have really dense, clean burning firewood. The leaves are packed with protein for your animals or Elliot. And the wood also hosts lion's mane and oyster mushrooms. We could throw all that in a farmer's crunch wrap. We call it Farmer Elliot's Crunch Wrap Supreme. Mulberry leaf crunch wrap. Farmer. Yeah. It sounds pretty good. I'd, I'd probably eat it. Have a nibble. You yeah. could take a bite, give a bite to your sheep, take another bite, another bite to your sheep. I mean, I'm just going to make one for the sheep. I'm not going to... It's better together. Is it? Maybe. I don't know. I just got a wicked fucked up image in my head. <laughs> Doing like the lady in the tramp. Like oh. with the spaghetti noodle, but it's a <laughs> farmer's contract like and me and a sheep. Nigerian goat, just like... It's, it's horrible. I, I, I'm going to drink after we're done with this episode to get that out of my head. No, you're not. I got to cope. <laughs> You'll be fine. I got to cope. faith. Also, I'll cover one more, maple trees. So not only do they really coppice well and provide maple syrup, as I'm sure you know, they're also great for coppicing with standards for that same reason. While sugar maple firewood is not really the best, it's not the worst, much like willow, it makes for really good kindling and a good wood for shoulder season, which is like the spring and the fall. And it really shines in the mushroom category where it can host like a bunch of different edible mushrooms. So if you are a big mushroom person, it definitely deserves a spot in the coppice rotation. The last on my list is, which is by no means exhaustive, is the oak. So oaks are slow growing, but they do have an incredible firewood. They make good leaf hay. They're a staple crop of acorns, which can be utilized by either you or your livestock. So Elliot can get his acorn-raised bacon, essentially. And it's really one of the most useful trees for mushroom production. Further, this is probably the most likely species to already be on your property and also is one of the most important species for native biology in your ecosystem. So it's definitely worth having some and if you are pollarding them, keeping in mind what you want to get out of it. So there's so many more great trees for coppicing and pollarding, but hopefully this gives you enough to chew on when thinking about the species you might be interested in. And as you can probably tell, there isn't really too many wrong ways to coppice. The most important thing to do is not cut your coppice stool in the fall. You can cut it in the summer when you're harvesting hay, but 
just as it prepares to send the sugars back to the roots, it's important to not zap the tree of that essential energy to make it through the winter. If you're looking to harvest logs, the winter is really a perfect time to trim your coppice or pollard down. If you're looking for tree hay, any time during the summer is good, and even in the spring, harvesting those branches as the buds begin to break is a good way to get even the most picky animal to start enjoying that tree hay. Shaping and annual cycles and so on really depend on spacing, species, and your goals. The closer the coppice and pollard stools are to one another, the more straight the shoots will grow to compete with one another for the sunlight access. Further, the closer they are, the quicker they'll block out that sunlight to the forest floor, which might impact how often you want to cut your coppice down if you're looking to graze underneath it, and might impact whether you want to do coppicing versus pollarding. And you can see how all these things start to tie together, and you essentially just have to have a good framework of understanding what you're planning on doing. And for a lot of that, that means actually seeing it to see what it actually looks like when you've got a mature willow coppice or whatever it might be, and what that actually looks like at seven years or five years. And there's some really great resources on YouTube for that kind of stuff. The key is to not overthink it. Remember that one of your ancestors has more than likely spent their entire lives coppicing or pollarding trees, and we're really only a few generations removed from this historical practice. The most important part is cutting the tree for the first time. You spent the money usually to buy the species you want, then you spend years growing it from that tiny whip, and now you're going to do what seems like the worst possible thing, cutting off the top. Take deep breaths. With a tree, it's more typical to leave a tree supporting three to five branches. With a pollard, it's more typical to leave a tree supporting three to five branches, and those three branches are cut back to a desirable length and the twiggy growth appears at these ends. This allows the tree to quickly begin to photosynthesize and to quell your nerves that something resembling a tree continues to exist. Initially, the new shoots are held weakly in place as they grow rapidly from underneath the bark rather than from within the tree. As the wood lays down annual growth rings, the union strengthens, often forming a thickened base where the shoot meets the trunk. Over a number of years, a swollen pollard head forms where new shoots grow each year. That said, I've seen oaks that I didn't care about get lopped at three or four feet height in the middle of summer and now look like the most experienced woodsman has managed it. Yeah, so you've got yourself a weird looking like chia pet. A tree pet. Yeah, or like bonsai that you can use. Like it, it is art sort of still, but at the same time you can like get stuff out of it. Yeah, I got nothing for that one. Sorry. Bonsai's created. Bonsai's intense. Yeah, like, that's I can't one do of, that. That's one of those things I'm probably going to get older. Well, as I get older and I can't like do all the physical stuff that I want to do, I'm going to dive head. That's how I'm going to learn about trees. That's your way out. <laughs> I'm going to make mini trees. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Can't wait. Yeah. So when it comes to coppicing, the real recommendation is to only start coppicing during the winter after a tree is at least five years old. Cut it as close to the ground as possible. Really helps ensure a stable stool for the tree to send up new shoots from. And ideally, you'd like to stay away from coppicing significantly older trees. That doesn't mean you can't. It just means that the tree might struggle a little bit more to grow. That said, my own willow was probably like 30 years old when I gave it its first coppice. And the growth in three years is just like insane. Like, I don't think I would even notice that it was a coppice tree. Nope. It looks like a, what, 25, 30 foot tree. Yeah, you had to point it out. And I, it looked like it just looked like a tree. And like, I'd never coppiced before and I made some mistakes and like there's spots that you can see like mushrooms growing from and um, the tree is still fine. Like I'll cut it back and try to clean it up even though I probably shouldn't. Um, but I do want it to look a little bit better and 
there's plenty of room to cut it lower. So it's still got a few more years, right? Uh, I was planning on taking it down next this winter. So we'll cut it back and use that for uh, some firewood. We'll try to get some footage. Yeah. There's a lot of wiggle room. The point is, don't beat yourself up. Or cut yourself down. <laughs> or tell bad jokes like me, and sometimes Elliot. So, yeah, <laughs> what? My jokes are gold. They're gold. So don't set too high of expectations of what it should look like. People have been doing this stuff since we used rocks to cut trees, so like, give yourself some slack. Trees are pretty resilient. Be confident. And don't, you don't even have to be confident. Just consistent in your attempts, and your trees will probably thrive. So at this point, you've probably got a good understanding of the history of coppicing and pollarding and know way too much about the life cycle of trees in the brief 400 million year history of branches, as Elliot now will forever remember. Yeah, trees have been around for a long time. So hopefully you've got a few species in mind that might be a good fit for this within the context of what you're trying to do. And you've got a rough guide to what this practice should look like in a hands-on setting and what you've got to do to be successful in it. So we'll be linking to a bunch of different books and essays on the subject. So if this is your first time hearing of the practice, you should definitely go listen to our other episodes. And also, I'll definitely recommend reading further because it's a really awesome art practice and has an incredible history. In our next episode, we're going to be diving into that tree hay, which will wrap up the conversations around silvopasture. And we'll begin to start thinking again about soil. So until next time, this is Andy. And this is Elliot. And this is the Mulberry's Almanac. The Poor Pearl's Almanac. Bye.